This is Brian Colburn from Playlist Wars, and you are listening to Michael's Record Collection. Keep on spinning. Welcome to Michael's Record Collection. I'm Michael Citro, and this is episode number 40. Instead of taking the Thanksgiving week off, I figured I'd just do a special bonus episode of MRC without doing a newsletter this week. So it's just the video and the podcast. I also thought I would drop it a couple of days early to give you time to digest it before you get to digesting the turkey and the cranberry sauce and the stuffing and all of that. For this episode, I asked New Jersey musician Brian Colburn to come on the show and talk to me about one of my favorite albums from the year I graduated high school, Heartbeat City by The Cars. Brian isn't just a talented musician, he's also the co-host of the excellent Playlist Wars podcast. You may recall that I had his co-host Gomez on episode number 22 of Michael's Record Collection. Brian's a huge fan of the cars, and so he was the perfect person to discuss Heartbeat City with. Before we get to that, I want to thank everyone who has supported this podcast from the beginning, the companion YouTube channel, and Michael's Record Collection newsletter on my Patreon site, Check it out at patreon.com slash Michael's Record Collection and just see if the value offered is something that would interest you. And if it's not, continue to enjoy MRC for free. Now let's find out a little bit more about Brian Colburn and dive into Heartbeat City. Here we go. Hey everybody, it is time once again for Michael's Record Collection. This is a special bonus edition. And joining me from Playlist Wars, you may remember I've had Gomez on previously from Playlist Wars, the other co-host who was supposed to also be with us that night, but sadly he was a little busy. He's got a life. Brian Colburn, thanks for being with me. Dude, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited about this one. And, I'm, and actually, I love the episode that Gomez did. I love Linkin Park, but mm-hmm. the fact that we're talking about the cars tonight, I'm going to be honest, I like this album more. So <laughs> I got a lot more to contribute to this album than I do to Lincoln Park. So I think I think you're the winner here because you get two great episodes because Gomez is really passionate about yeah. Lincoln Park and I'm a little more passionate about the cars. So not that I don't like Lincoln Park, though, <laughs> after hearing it a few times and talking it over with Gomez, I can honestly say I'm still not a Lincoln Park guy, but this. Well, I like this a lot, but we'll be talking about this. The- that is the one these? I'm that's those are the ones I mean. And, and you got the, something and else one back you. here on my yeah. original vinyl. Is this yeah. what we're talking about? That's what we're and, talking and about. Can I also say you might you you'll you'll be impressed by this. It took me years to hunt this down, but it's actually the original Target CD edition, oh, not yeah. the store. But when CDs were first made, they were shaped like a target. This is the original pressing of heartbeat city on cd it took me many many years to find this used and when i did i kind of yelped out in the store and i said to my wife i'm like i got the target edition of the cars heartbeat city that my and she, that that's good honey that's nice like, <laughs> so yeah. i'm excited to talk about this one awesome uh before we get to our cars talk uh just l- let's talk a little bit about you know just as a reminder you are the co-host of playlist wars which is a, a fantastic podcast that And I'm not just saying that because you had me as a guest. Uh, You guys make playlists based on a band or a topic, and you come up with 10 songs each, you and your co-host Gomez and a guest, and you go through your 
your playlist one at a time. And then at the end of it, you turn it over to your listeners, which is an interesting twist, and they get to vote for the playlist they like best. Uh, Gomez has already kind of told the story, but just from your perspective, how did Playlist Wars start? How did it become a thing? I was on a previous music podcast that I had been doing for a few years, and I started coming up with different ideas of how to kind of grow the show. But the show was unfortunately at a point where things were just weren't working out timing wise between me and the host, who I'm still great friends with. And he was in the middle of a move and the show was kind of going on hiatus. And I was talking to Gomez on the phone one night and I said, I got this idea, but it's a little different than what I'm doing now. It's it's not really interview based. This is more of a. I don't want to call it a game show, but it's 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 a game surrounding mm -hmm. opinions where the opinions don't matter and neither do the votes because we're talking about something that's subjective. And Gomez goes, I'm listening. And I kind of ran through the, the idea of Playlist Wars. And he's like, we're doing this. This is great, because at the end of the day, the name alone, Playlist Wars, is ironic because we're not arguing with each other. We're not crapping on the songs that everyone picks these are all topics and artists and songs that we like now there might be a song we resonate with more that makes our list but that doesn't mean we hate the songs that made the other person's list so this isn't like an angry battle where we're crapping on each other the whole time and it's mm -hmm. all negative we're celebrating the music that we talk about on the show so it's a little bit of an ironic twist on the name but bringing people in to vote so we're giving our opinions on songs, bands, albums, and then the listeners are giving their opinions on our opinions. Yeah. And what it does is it creates a dialogue in a circle because then we go to, on social media and we say, okay, Hey, you guys voted for here. Why, why not these songs? What would you pick? And then when you hear other people's sides, it just becomes a conversation that kind of takes itself outside of the podcast and we try to include podcasters and people that chime in with us on social media as much as we can in the show as well, because the people that are listening, I know, because when I listen to podcasts in there and they're talking about lists, I'm in the car yelling, going, why didn't you pick this? And I know people are doing that with us. So we want to try to incorporate that as much as possible into each episode, because without them listening, it would just be like as our episode it would just be you me and gomez talking to ourselves which is still fun mm -hmm. and it's still rewarding but having the people that listen chime in and kind of become part of the conversation it's it's just a fantastic little community that we're slowly building up here yeah that interactive component to your show is really what kind of sets it apart from others and and it, it music should be fun and it should be about talking about music like when when we were kids, you know, you probably weren't too much different than me. When you're a kid, you have you get a new record, you're excited, you put it on, you want your friends to come over and listen to it, you talk about it, what was great about it, what sucked. Um, and then when they get a new record, you go over to their house and you do the same thing. So and, and that's kind of what Michael's record collection is. It's it's just a way to talk about great music. And that's what we're we're gonna do today with the cars, Heartbeat City. But let me talk to you a little bit of a little bit about what your your background is with music like i know from listening to your show that you seem like you kind of gravitated early on to your parents record collection is that right that is absolutely right yeah every friday night my dad would turn the tv off op open up the uh cabinet pull out the records and it would be music night 
And we were, you know, make your own DJ. We would like, my father would pick a song. My mother would pick a song. I would pick a song and we kind of go in circles Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, sometimes being the four or five year old, I'd get, you know, one or two picks in a row, a couple extra, you know, throw the kid a bone. Uh, But I got introduced to so many bands that way because I would play a song by let's say the chipmunks off my chipmunk record. I had a record called chipmunk punk. And (laughs) one of the first songs on it was the chipmunks doing refugee by Tom Petty. And my father's like, Oh, you like the chipmunks, huh? It's a good chipmunk song. Right. And he would take chipmunk punk off and he would put damn the torpedoes on and say, what do you think of this? And uh, you know, four-year-old, I'm like, that's the chipmunks. No, Brian, that's the song <laughs> the chipmunks were singing. I love this song. So, you know, and then it just became from there. It was that type of conversation and dialogue that really helped me shape the way I listen to music. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of gravitated. My parents had records, but they didn't. I don't recall them playing a lot of their records in the house once they had kids and we and they had four of us they didn't really have a lot of time for record playing. So I kind of discovered their records later, but they got me a stereo as a kid and they got me some, some KTEL records. I got goofy greats. So I had goofy greats, all these you know, alley-oop and, you know, yummy, yummy and all the sugar, sugar and all these songs. Was one of them hit express in the early eighties. I, I did I, have I, hit express. Yes. That was the one with the train. I had that record. Yeah. That was one of that. That was one of my records growing up too. Yeah. Hit Express, um, Music Machine, I think was one. There was one called Out of Sight, uh, and, and of course Goofy Greats, and it had Snoopy and the Red Baron and stuff like that on it. But I, we always listened to the radio in the car with my mom, and so we listened to a lot of pop. You know, she she would put on a, a top forty station, and they were still playing it when I was little. They were still playing Beatles songs, so I remember my first favorite song was Yellow Submarine because I mean, what kid wouldn't love we all live in a yellow submarine and and it just kind of grew from there and then i i remember because like you i'm from new jersey but i moved to ohio when i was very young and we would take these long car trips back to visit the grandparents and they had a show on their i guess it was probably not cable yet but they had a show called the monkeys on and that's how i discovered the monkeys and then the theme song from the monkeys became my favorite song so you gravitate toward that stuff as a kid. And, and then of course, growing up in the Midwest, I went from there straight to kiss because kiss was huge in the Midwest. But what was your first favorite song or album that you remember? Like a rock album or a pop album? Believe it or not, it's the same band we're talking about tonight. It's the self-titled album from the cars. Mm -hmm. Good times roll was one of the first songs my father put on every time we were doing music night. And there was a skip in the first chorus. So to this day, when I listen to the song to tell you how many times I heard it as a kid, when the chorus actually happens without the skip, I feel like something's wrong. I'm like, Where, yeah. where's the skip? I, 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 <laughs> it should be good times all because you get the, it skipped at the R. And I yeah, just yeah. remember that vividly as a kid. And yeah, that album just shaped my musical life because it was a genre defining album Mm -hmm. and it was a genre crossing album new wave punk rock a lot of the elements of music that i listen to to this day were all melded into one and ushered in by this band and hearing this song so many times this album so many times just kind of showed me that 
you could do a lot of different things with music and make it work. So it, it, mm-hmm. it immediately expanded my horizon just based on the cars being so multifaceted as they were. Yeah. It's funny you brought the skip thing up because I was on the Records Revisited podcast talking about Boston's Don't Look Back album. And yep, I yep. had a skip in that in that album. I had a skip and I'm still looking for that every time I play it uh, on CD or, or the new vinyl that I have. So I get you. Yeah, ben, ben and Wayne are fantastic. I love that show, too. Great, Great guys. guys. Yeah, I, I actually got to see Wolfgang Van Halen's band with uh, with Ben. So that I was saw. Great. I was very, I was very jealous. I was living vicariously through <laughs> you both from up here in New Jersey because I can't wait to see uh, Mammoth WVH. I mean, Wolfie yeah. is otherworldly talent. I don't care what anybody says. Yes, he's not Eddie Van Halen, but he doesn't need to be. He's a talent yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, he's he's tremendous, and it was great because he. You could just tell the joy on his face at finally getting to headline because he'd been out on the road with Guns N' Roses and getting to headline and, and seeing this packed theater just there to see him was it was really very touching to see his reaction to that. So I'm, I'm I was I was thrilled that he even apologized at the end of the night. I'm sorry we don't have more songs to play. <laughs> we played everything <laughs> we have. So it was great. Um, the great thing about music is that you never know where it's going to take you. And you actually became a musician. You just told me before we started something that I didn't know that you have music on Spotify. Certainly do. Yeah. So how did that come about? When did you start to become a musician? And uh, tell me a little bit about your music on Spotify. Well, I started with, if you listen to Playlist Wars, the theme music is actually my hard rock band, The Fourth. And we were around in 1999 to 2002, and we recorded those songs. And that theme song is one of our songs called Left Behind. And it's just, I when we were starting the podcast, I reached out to the guys and said, hey, guys, I'm starting this podcast. It's Playlist Wars. Got to have an aggressive theme song. I know the perfect one. I want to use Left Behind. And they both went, they all went, all three of them went, do it, use it, love it. And uh, drummer Jay, who's been on the podcast several times, is the one who plays drums on that song. Mm -hmm. After that, I did a pop punk band for a few years. Then I started going into the cover band route, which I instantly got excited with. And then just as fast got de-enticed with it because starting at 1130 at night and playing till four in the morning for a bunch of completely whacked out drunk people when you've got a child at home just became disenfranchising to me. So at that point, I said, I want to continue music, but my schedule is going to be a lot different because the kids are the most important thing here. So I started writing songs at home. 
And because my background is in radio and in broadcasting, I have recording equipment. So I slowly started recording these songs. And over two years, I put out three albums of songs that I did using uh, program drum tracks, but everything else was kind of me mm-hmm. on bass, on guitar. I would get my friends here and there to record a part. But then in 2011, I said, I want to do a real album. Everything played by other musicians Mm-hmm. And I want to do it with a budget of like nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And I said, I want to challenge myself to be able to mix and record an album with real drums, full tracks. And I actually went online and found some amazing drummers that would you can hire them out. They would record the song for you. One of which was um, LeJo Young, who is Travis Tritt's touring drummer. Wow. So him and I became talking. I, st- I would basically record a track to a click, send it to him. He would come up with a drum part, send it back, and we would actually go back and forth and say, you know, I kind of want this part to go halftime, then this to kick back in. And we would build the song and he would kind of write the drums for it. Then I would play the bass myself because I'm a bassist first and foremost. And then I started reaching out like, you know what? I want to have a lead guitar on this track. That's a slide guitar. So I called my buddy DC Slater, who played in the fourth, who's that hard rock band I told you about and said, hey, man, I know you got recording gear need some slide work. I know you're the man for it. I would send him the track. And then through networking with other bands, uh, there's a band based out of South Carolina called Danger Muffin. They're a jam band. They're absolutely fantastic. Seen them many a times on the jam band circuit. I got to talking with their guitarist and I ended up opening for them one night. And I told them about the song I was working on. And I said, and I just said flat out, love you for you to jam on it with me. And he goes, I've got a recording gear at home. He goes, email me the track. He gave me his email, sent him the track. Two days later, I got a guitar part from him. And then just through online social networking, I got in touch with Jamie Cohen, who is the lead guitarist in From Good Homes. And I told him how big of a fan of their music I was and how my music was influenced by theirs. Mm -hmm. And went to a show one night, was talking with them after. And I said, I would love some violin in these two songs I have. And he said, send me your address. I can come down this weekend and record it. And I went, sure, you can. So I <laughs> gave him my address. And as we're leaving, my wife said, you realize, Brian, that this isn't happening. And I said, yeah, like I, I, I thought he was just being extra nice. Uh-huh. Next morning, my phone rings and he goes, hey, I'm going to be there around one o'clock. Is that OK for you? I'm like, sure is scrambling to clean the house with all the kids toys. I set up an area in the basement. He came over recorded two songs for me on violin. And we sat and talked about from good homes music for about two hours afterwards, such an amazing day. And over the next year, I did this continuously and mixed this album and it's called forever was worth the wait. And it's up on Spotify and iTunes and Bandcamp, And it's just me working with a full band and songs that I had crafted over three years. I finally did them the way I wanted to do them. And it's an album I'm, very proud of the song once upon a time is a song i wrote about the night my first daughter was born and more to men, and you'll always be my god night the star so bright the world can save that once upon a time saw the world
few years later, I had my second daughter and she's now wondering where her song is coming. So I got to get right <laughs> on twice upon a time, but just a lot of songs that are really special to me. They're real personal, mm-hmm. uh, very acoustic rock based. I'm a big nineties rock guy. So my influence is obviously Tom Petty. If you've heard anything on playlist wars, but mm-hmm. toad, the wet sprocket, hootie and the Blowfish, that acoustic nineties sound is kind yeah. of what I was going for on this album. And it's something I'm, I'm very proud of. I look back at it and I can listen to the songs with a smile on my face and uh, know that it was time well spent. And they're uh, they're on there just under Brian Colburn. Yep. The album is called Forever Was Worth the Wait. It's a part of the lyrics to one of the songs and the it's under Brian Colburn. Okay. C-O-L-B-U-R-N. That and uh, go go check it out on Spotify and uh, also be sure to check out Playlist Wars. I believe it's playlistwarspodcast.com. That's correct. They are also all over all the social medias. So just type in Playlist Wars. You'll find them on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And um, that's it's a fun community. So and also be sure to check out their episode on music from 1971. Yeah. Vote for me (laughs) because I need the votes. (laughs) I think as of right now, as of the night we're taping, I think we both need the vote. So I'll take some two people. I think Gomez is in the lead right now uh, with a fantastic playlist all around. I mean, all three were fantastic, but yeah, you got to go listen and see for yourself. We got to see where you align. I'm totally fine with hawking for votes. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So one of the reasons that you and I are going to be talking about the cars heartbeat city is because you, my friend, have been doing a lot of podcasts as a guest and everybody wants you to talk about your favorite album the cars by the cars and so when i asked you to come on you're like please don't make me talk about the cars again and i said hmm okay plan b how about heartbeat city because i feel like that is probably the album that a lot of people remember very very well because in my generation you would have seen all of those great videos on mtv it was a huge album in 1984. It's a, it's a, an album from the year that I graduated from high school. Uh, it, it came out just a, a couple of months before I graduated from high school. So obviously it resonates with me on that level as well. So you uh, graciously agreed that we would do the Heartbeat City thing. And so here we are. And the Cars Heartbeat City was released on March 13th, 1984 on Electra Records a three-year gap since uh, Shake It Up, their fifth studio album. It is a quadruple platinum album that equals their Candio album. It's second only to the Cars, which sold six million. Although I got to believe that Heartbeat City helped uh, boost some of those sales for that first album. And it actually has sold twice as many copies as Shake It Up, which is also a very good album. It's the first Cars album not produced by Roy Thomas Baker. The band felt that they needed to Uh, that that sort of relationship had run its course and they needed to branch out and find something else. Rick Ocasek had a a real fondness for the sound of the ACDC sound that that, um, Mutt Lang was able to come up with. So this was produced by Robert John Mutt Lang. It's a wonder that it didn't end up sounding like ACDC because it seems like everything else that he touches sort of sounds like that a bit. But um, Rick loved that sound and he they wanted to do a modern sounding record as as modern sounding a record as possible. And I think that in 1984, they really pulled that off. Could not agree more, although there's always been a part of me 
that because I'm so fond of the self-titled album and the sound that they had, even even on their darker albums like Panorama, I would love to hear what a Roy Thomas Baker produced Heartbeat City would be. Yeah, that because would be interesting. Mutt Lang really knew how to put the shine and the sheen on the sound. And this is their cleanest, most sonically perfect album. Roy Thomas Baker left some imperfections in the older albums. And that was kind of a, I don't want to say a nuance, but it really helped add to the punky, almost raw aspect of the band, even though they were a slightly polished new wave band. Heartbeat City, they were the fully polished new wave band. Yeah, I can imagine that a lot of longtime Cars fans were not thrilled at the sound of this record when it first came out. I bet not. I bet you this is what happens when a band like Fits in the Tantrums, who started off as a 70s neo soul group, came out with Hand Clap, which is a total pop song. Yeah. And another analogy, I think, for my audience would be uh, when Rush started using keyboards at the forefront of their records. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot lost a lot of uh, old time fans, but this album was recorded from July 1983 to January 1984 at Battery Studios in London. Ironically, the album didn't chart in England, despite it being exactly the kind of synth pop that was big in the country at that time. They spent seven months recording this in London, and Rick Okasik has said that that time spent there, that much time spent there, was part of the reason the group disbanded at one point. Which is a shame because they got a hell of an album out of it. Yeah, I think um, it, it's very it's very difficult working with Mutt Lang. I think everybody comes away from that experience saying he pushed us. He, you know, we learned so much, but he's also very, very exacting and very uh, art uh, meticulous. And it's it's got to be a difficult thing. They thought they were going to record this in one or two months. <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know. Right. <laughs> uh, it's a short album, Brian. It's uh, the 10 songs only add up to 38, just under 39 minutes long. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's perfectly OK. Yeah. That's the kind of album that you don't mind going. Oh, wow. That's over already. I'm going to hit play again mm -hmm. and uh, and listening to it again. It's a, like you mentioned, it's a, a glossy, slick production. Once you know it's mutt, you can hear instantly all the elements that ended up being used on Def Leppard's Hysteria, mm -hmm. and you know, which came out three uh, three years later. Rick sings almost all the songs. Ben sings Drive. Ben Orr sings Drive. Stranger Eyes and It's Not the Night. Six of the ten songs were singles. Right. Well, It's Not the Night is one of the few car songs that actually features both Rick and right. Benjamin on lead vocals. I actually, yeah. I, I had to look this up because I when I saw that I'm going. How many? Because their voices are sonically the same. So you can honestly, if you're introducing somebody to the cars and, and you could say, is that singer one or singer two? If they don't know anything about the band. <laughs> yeah, I bet you they'd get a lot of them wrong. They have a yeah. very similar sound. But since I held you from Candio, you wear those eyes from Panorama and you are the girl from door to door are the other three songs where both Rick and Ben sang lead with yeah. It's Not the Night, which. Out of all those songs, It's Not the Night's my favorite of all of them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as well. So the Cars at that time, Rick Okasik, vocals, guitar. He wrote all the songs. 
There was a, a partial cr uh, writing credit for Greg Hawks on one song. We'll get to that. Ben Orr, vocals and bass. Elliot Easton, guitar and vocals. Greg Hawks, keyboards, vocals, Fairlight, and CMI programming. David Robinson, drums and Fairlight programming. There were a lot of keyboards and a lot of uh, synthesized sounds on this album. And it kicks off with one of the singles, Hello Again. perfect album opener the song is called hello again they've been three years since they you know had seen us as uh as the band uh, released the new album and this single was released on october 15th of 1984 it was the fourth single from the album it reached number 20 on the billboard hot 100 chart also reached number eight on the hot dance disco chart number 22 on the top rock track uh rock tracks chart and very experimental this song from right from the get-go um that vocal intro was at the time, um, you know, a, a marvel of, of experimentation. And what's interesting about just the title track alone, hello again, while they've been gone for three years could be seen as that's the reason they wrote it, but this is a new sound for the cars. Mm -hmm. So it could also in a kind of a metaphoric way be like, hello again, we're somebody new. Now this yeah. is like a new version of this. Hello because we're reintroducing ourselves because if it's not far removed from the self-titled, but it is far removed. It, 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 you could honestly make an argument that it's not two different bands. It's not that it's not that egregious, but this is a different cars band than you were getting on panorama on shake it up on Candio. This is a reinvention, a rebirth of them. So hello again is a perfect way to open the album. Yeah. And right from the get go, you are hearing the Mutt Lang influence. You if you listen to this thing on a good set of headphones, you're hearing all these very simple but very subtle and, and intricate parts that are that just add so much texture and so many layers to it. And all of these parts alone are not that complex. But when you add them all up together, I can only imagine these guys trying to figure out how are we going to do this when we go on the road? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was definitely one of those songs that when you listen to on a good set of headphones, it's a marvel because you're hearing sounds getting panned left and right in the back of your ears. I mean, this song really, if you close your eyes, it's, it's all over the place. Even in the beginning, the do, do, do hello. Like you're hearing it kind of sway back and forth and it's, it's, almost like a visual light show to your ears. Yeah. It's really interesting what they're doing. And I think they were able to capture that by using the one and only Andy Warhol to make the video because the video was pretty iconic. I remember this because 
my parents had the VHS tape of Heartbeat City, the videos. Okay. And this was the one where every time during the song at some point, I kept getting like a hand over my eyes from somewhere <laughs> because there were some parts of the video that weren't meant for my young eyes. Yeah. So <laughs> as I got older and saw the real video, that's Warhol written all over it. And it went with the kind of the weird nature of this, this song. And it's a, it was a perfect video companion piece for it, which I think we're going to say for several songs on this album. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Warhol directed it and was uh, in the video, but you're right. When you, when you said the word weird, it, it, it is very, there's some strange, first of all, keyboards are everywhere. There's all kinds of keyboards, all different kinds of keyboard parts. And then there's these sort of munchkin sounds at one point in the song. And it is like, they're telling you right up front, this is not anything you've heard from the cars before. Right, right. They go from track one to track two, looking for love, which is a, it definitely is a mood change right there, right off the bat. Uh, A very, a kind of a simple song with great harmony vocals. And it's, I think an overlooked track on this album, but it's hard. I mean, it's easy to overlook a track that has so many strong songs on this. Yeah, and I think the thing was, it starts off as a ballad, but then it kind of goes to a slightly mid-tempo. I don't want to say dancey, but, and I think that, I don't think radio could handle that in 1984, because it's, if you listen to the songs that were made, the singles, they're coming at you at one pace. This song starts off where it's almost like an, you could strip it down to an acoustic ballad, but then when they kick it in with it, you can't stop but you can't go. It, it becomes this snappy ditty. And yeah. then it goes back into the chorus with these beautiful layered harmonies. It's complex in its simplistic nature. If the, I know that sounds contradictory, but <laughs> it's a complex arrangement on what would be if it was played in one tempo, a pretty simple ballad. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, the, the tempo change was one of the interesting twists to the song so yeah i can understand why people would be like wait a minute is this what do we do with this do we play is it a slow song is it a fast song we don't know what to do with it i understand Mm -hmm. that track three is my favorite track on the album so i'm i'll ask you what yours is at some point or you can offer it up i will tell you when we get to mine how does that sound sounds good because this one is up there but it's not my favorite yeah this uh, magic is 
an unbelievable track. The second single came, it was released as a single May 7th of 84. It went up to number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was number one on the mainstream rock chart. Greg Hawks uh, said this about it. Mutt suggested something that sounded like the Star Wars Cantina Band. <laughs> <laughs> it's got very simple guitar chords and like a sort of a heavy drum that you can hear that drum sound on Hysteria from Def Leppard. Oh, yeah. You can, you can go uh, back to Pyromania and hear that even um that drum sound that he gets on this uh song what do you what are your overall thoughts on magic well first off the video proved that rick okasic i'm sorry rick okasic was larger than life because he could walk on water yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> let's be honest but the song is definitely one of the most iconic pop songs of the 80s so much so that on my old podcast i interviewed will turpin who's the bass player for collective soul and there was always a song by them that made me raise an eyebrow. And finally, when I was able to interview him, I was able to say, Hey, Will Hollywood, I got to ask, are you guys cars fans? And he snickered. And his response was this song was written as an homage to magic by the cars. So if you're a fan of magic by the cars, you need to look up Hollywood by collective soul. It's a it's probably one of my favorite collective soul songs, especially after hearing that story about it. Yeah. So I, I absolutely love this song. And if if you do listen to Playlist Wars podcast, you know that I love to drop covers when applicable. Mm -hmm. Butch Walker, who is one of my favorite singer songwriters of kind of the last 20 years, covers the song in a montage called My Best Friend's Magic Girlfriend. He has an EP called Heartwork, and it's a mashup of My Best Friend's Girl and Magic, which is a really cool acoustic-y cover that he did of it. And uh, yeah, this song is just brilliant. It's fun. The uh-oh, I mean, like as a kid, you're singing along with it. it. It just makes you happy. And sometimes that's all a song needs to do. This song just makes you feel happy. That is a great observation because that is... When this song comes on, if you're listening to the radio or you're shuffling your, your songs off your phone or whatever, I can't imagine a time or place where you wouldn't reach for the volume knob when, when this song starts. And that's the reason. And it's a great, it's great for a, if you have a morning commute playlist, fantastic song for a morning commute playlist. You can't be starting the day off, even on a Monday, in a bad mood if you hear this song on the way to work. Exactly. It just makes you happy. Yeah. And that sometimes is all that music is needed to do. Yeah. And, but it does so much more. And again, if you listen to this in a, you know, on a, on a really high end stereo or in a good set of heads, headset, your good set of headphones, there's so much going on in the song so much. And it's amazing to me how Mutt Lang can 
build and build and build and layer and layer and layer little simple parts that just add up to this incredibly complex, lush sound. So many textures. It is something that, again, I would love to have heard how uh, Roy Thomas Baker would have layered this song. I feel like it would have been more akin to maybe one of the songs on uh, Panorama, where it was slightly layered, but more aggressive. Because that riff, if you listen to the riff of Magic, the bounce, bounce. It's yeah. kind of aggressive. Yeah, very aggressive. But the way that they were able to take it and make it happy between the keyboards underneath and the drum sound, like it's just a really complex way to make a simple song less simple. And because if you think about it, this is one of those songs. It's not if you play guitar, it's not a hard song to play. There are other songs by the cars that are much more complex, but damn, is it not fun? I mean, yeah. Love those power chords. Just uh, bam, bam. It's just, yeah, it's tremendous. It's a great song. And, and that's why I know sometimes it's hard to pick uh, between your favorites. But for me, Magic is the top of the list. And uh, it's a great song. That's my but, number two. That's my number two. But behind one other song, which yeah. I think may surprise you. I don't know. Okay. We'll see. Track four is Drive. This was the third single off the album. It was released July 23rd of 84. It went up to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the mainstream rock, uh, or no, three also on mainstream rock, number one on the adult contemporary chart. In fact, they loved it in Canada too, at the, in the uh, adult contemporary category, also went one mm -hmm. in Canada. This was something that Rico Cassix said on the uh, the In The Studio program. Are you, are you familiar with In The Studio with Redbeard? Yes. So he said, it was probably about a nervous breakdown, not my own, or maybe about false hope. I remember thinking it was kind of an eerie song. And I think that, I think you can see where he's coming from. It's a, it's sort of a dark song and the video bears that out as well. The video oh, was gotcha. a, a very disturbing almost video. Yeah. Timothy Hutton did a great job directing that the black and white really added to the, I don't want to say macabre, but it was definitely a, eerie vibe to yeah. it and i think that was was courtesy of the black and white because i think if it was in color it might have taken away some of the, the mystery and then obviously rick's uh future wife was in the video mm -hmm. um i'm not even gonna attempt paulina and i always say it wrong so paulina poroskova there you go yeah. uh, absolutely stunning i mean her beautiful beautiful even to this day she's just a stunning stunning person um with this song this is the most covered song off of this album with cover songs. Mm -hmm. And 
I just want to mention three of them because I love doing this. On the 51st Date soundtrack, Ziggy Marley did a reggae version of it, which was really good. If you're into heavier rock, modern rock, 6 a.m., which is Nikki Six's hard rock band, right. covers the song on the Modern Vintage album. Mm-hmm. I've heard that and one. And if you're a, if you're a country-leaning guy, Tim McGraw covered it uh, in 2019 on his McGraw Machine Hits 2013 to 2019 compilation. So all three very different covers of the song, and they all work. And then not a cover, but a remix was put out, I want to say in the last two years or so, and it was called, I think the album was called Symphonic 80s. And it's Ben's vocal track with a symphony bed. And oh my God, it is just gorgeous. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of a word that would make gorgeous sound better. <laughs> and it, it's just, it, it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Because hearing it with a symphony in his voice and knowing he's no longer with us, it's just so beautiful and that's a fantastic version to look up if you haven't heard it it's interesting that ben did almost all their very haunting songs he did the vocals for their haunting songs even on this album there's a couple other ones that are a little more um more have more of a spooky vibe to them and and when we lost him it was just such a massive massive loss especially after he put out that wonderful solo album the lace which the lace, is yeah is, as good as any cars album in my opinion it's just I'll be a fantastic honest, the, album. the lace is better than door to door because door to door was just rick and ben fighting over who was like you could tell the animosity on that album and i'm so glad that even though ben's not on it that they were able to do moves like this in 2011 to at least i don't want to say it'll never replace ben but it cleansed the palette that door to door left behind because door to door only had a few good to me. Heartbeat city is the bookend to self-titled door to door is the band self imploding and moves like this is the coda that they're not all together. Life isn't perfect, but there's still music to be made. And now, unfortunately with Ben gone, I'm sorry, with Ben and Rick gone, unless they do another formation of the new cars with Tog Rungren, which I'm praying for, because I would love to see any incarnation of the cars live <laughs> just to see Elliot up there playing these songs and David and, 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 um, Greg, Greg, mm-hmm. sorry about that. Had a mind <laughs> blank, uh, just to be able to see them and, and celebrate these songs. One time would be a dream come true for me. So if they're watching this, Todd guys, please, the new cars, let's do it again. What do you mean if they're watching this? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't watch Michael's record collection or listen to the podcast? Very simple. Bum, 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 bum. Just a very, very simple uh, parts to the song. But again, layer upon layer upon layer. And one of the coolest parts of Drive is that they went for that sort of 10cc vocal. where they just kept layering and adding and and just it's just gorgeous the, the vocals on this is, are, are just gorgeous especially all of the 
the very subtle parts that don't even you might not even notice that they're vocals right unless you're listening to it loudly in your in your headphones um you might not even, you might think that's a keyboard part or something but a lot of that's vocals so uh fantastic song and we come to the end of side one with stranger eyes Benjamin Orr on vocals. It's uh, and I I wrote down sort of a spooky keyboard sound um, that doo -doo 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 -doo. melding with uh, Elliot Eason's great guitar work uh, over the top of David Robinson's drumming. It's it, it's like got a like a real driving drum beat to it, and there's a lot of subtle intricate interplay in this song in the instrumental part. Yeah, this is, believe it or not, if we were on Records Revisited right now, I'm spoiling it if I ever go on to do this <laughs> album for a second time with Ben and Wayne, but this would be my number one song. Um, I don't hate it by any means, but I think the song that was left off this album, Tonight She Comes, that they ended up putting on the expanded version is a better track and might have felt more in line with the rest of the album. I felt like this one kind of sticks out a little bit. I don't know why there's just something about it, but I don't hate it by any means. It yeah. just kind of, it doesn't hit me the way the rest of the album yeah. does. I feel like the, the lyrics for this one aren't great. Um, I think that that's a weakness of this song. Maybe, maybe yeah, that's it's just, yeah. But uh, that that's your side one and you flip over the album and you get the big hit, the number one uh, single off the album. You might think, It was uh, released March 13th, 1984 as a single. And Greg Hawks called this the perfect Cars pop single. The depth of the song is revealed, again, in a good set of headphones. <laughs> I keep coming back to that because when I used to listen to this, it was on a cassette back in the day on a boom box or in my car and you get road noises. And of course I didn't have like, I just had a clunker, so it didn't have like a great car. So there was all kinds of noise. Uh, but once you get in a, in a, in the right setting, just so much gets revealed and there's more going on than just streaming it on your phone would, would tell you. Right. 
Yeah, this is a very complex song, believe it or not. I've covered this song on one of the albums I actually released, unfortunately not on digital because at the time I did not have the digital streaming rights for it. I was only able to get it from, I actually reached out to Lido Music, who was the ones who held the rights to uh, the car's music and got Rick's permission to print 200 copies of this song on CD of my cover. So I have have it on CD, but I never put it out digitally. And obviously I paid for the right to do such. He didn't just say, hey, Brian, no problem, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I paid my dues for it, but I did this song acoustically and, and recorded it that way. And it's a complex song. There's a lot going on, even though it's considered just a simple pop song. The chord changes, the timing changes. It's just perfect, everything about it. And that was the reason why when I said, what car song do I want? It was immediately this one. And I even I on my version, I took some vocal liberties with it and kind of played with some of the verse a little bit because I felt like it fit the acoustic nature of the song a little bit more. But just being able to I actually sent a copy to Lido Music and I'll never know now, unfortunately, but I hope at some point, maybe Rick heard it just because not that I was hoping that something would come of it, that I it's a thank you because of how much I love this band. I had to record this song. And another example of that on my second album that I did this attempt to use a cover song, I did Tom Petty's you're so bad. And I did, I went through the same routine, got the licensing rights, but for CD only, because at the time it was, very expensive to try to do digital streaming rights. And mm-hmm. I, I wasn't making the money to even pay for the rights I was doing for the CD, let alone that. So I, I, I have those two that I keep on my computer because they'll always be special to me, you know, kind of a time shot of life. But yeah. as far as the actual, you might think song, the video iconic, memorable as a kid, the fly going around like that was MTV. That was like, what am I watching? This yeah. is one of the videos like sledgehammer like it was cutting edge now you know and yeah. you you can call me out was not cutting edge but it right. was just those memorable moments of your childhood thriller uh you know I'm trying to think of an, like, uh, there's so many of them from the 80s that really just grabbed your attention mm-hmm. beat it i mean michael jackson was was awesome at them but as far as cover songs go for kids i've seen many of disney movies the cars 2 <laughs> soundtrack weezer does a very faithful and fun version of the song on that soundtrack. So if you're into cover songs, check out and you know, who doesn't love Weezer? Yeah. Or cars. All right. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, there's a connection there because Rick produced the blue album, plenty of albums for Weezer. So the yeah. fact that they were connected, it made me smile because when Weezer was covering it, it was kind of a nod to somebody that meant so much to them for producing the black, uh, the blue album. Yeah, for sure. As you said, the video was iconic. It was at that time for music videos that was cutting edge, sticking Rick Ocasek's face on a fly. I mean, it was just, uh, you're right. It was that moment of what am I even watching right now? What is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there was the the one moment in the car where the girl is uh, one frame, she's like this, and the next frame, her hair straight up. Uh, just all kinds of really cool stuff in that and the band had a lot of fun with these videos they didn't necessarily think that videos were the 
you know, they they kind of thought videos could be a danger to music. I think they thought that uh, I think Rick Ocasek said that he felt like you were busy watching and you're you were so engaged mentally with watching the video that you weren't hearing some of the things they wanted you to hear in the music. And he pointed out the fact that the you might think video, I believe it was the you might think video was missing part of the track when it came out and he had watched it several times and hadn't noticed that part of the the audio was missing. Hmm. So he said, well, if I am not noticing it, clearly there are other people are not going to notice that it's missing. So they, they weren't really sure about it, but they, they felt like it was, this is, this is the way things are going. This is kind of what we need to do. So. And uh, I, and I have to say, if they didn't do those videos, and I'm talking hello again, magic drive. And you might think, I don't think that, Heartbeat City would have sold as many copies. I think those videos were the perfect commercials for this eclectic album. Yeah, I agree with you. And and MTV was such a a driver of uh, of popular culture at that time. Um, and they were they came along and just started doing their videos at the right time and and memorable videos that people were talking about. Right, um, like, they, like people would get excited. Oh, it's the cars is on. You know, are on. Uh, stream, uh, you might think goes into it's not the night. setlist.com this was only played 15 times live and i think that's a crime um this one was the one that was co-written by greg hawks uh it reached number 31 on the top rock tracks chart despite not being a single there are synth parts all over the place to start this thing and then it gets a bit rockier with that benjamin or bass line another sort of dark mysterious vibe like stranger eyes and again that's what ben really excels in if you go all the way back to moving in stereo this is my favorite song on heartbeat city all right I, i'm a big rock guy and when that first kicks in with the bong it's not the night like it just when that kicked in on the stereo as a kid my eyes lit up like yes and that was <laughs> what i loved about this song it rocked and the cars don't rock often but when they do they do it well and this song retains a little bit of that, I don't want to say punk, but that swagger once it kicks in and gets heavy. But it's also this kind of emo-esque vocals over it. So it kind of, it's like oil and water, but it works. And it's just so memorable. The whole sweet revenge theme that goes through the song, it's darker for the cars, but the music, almost sounds upbeat and that's something that the cars have played with since the first album mm -hmm. because good times roll is this happy song which is essentially 
Rick Ocasek saying how much he hates the music industry <laughs> and the posers in it, but it's this happy song where you kind of think you think that he's talking about something, but he's actually mocking you. Yeah. And that was something they were so good at. And it kind of comes out in this song. And I love the fact that both Rick and Benjamin are taking some vocal parts in it. I think they should have did it more often. And yeah, this is one of those songs that just always resonated with me as a kid. And I was shocked that it wasn't a single because it is such a powerful song. And I know, you know, some of the others, as you kind of close out the album are not the ones that people remember, but I feel like this is one I wish they did remember because, yeah. you know, I, I understand the next track we're going to talk about was a single as well, but mm -hmm. I feel like it's not the night was actually more memorable than the next track. And I don't hate the next track at all. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it is a memorable song and, and it's one of those songs that maybe, you know, when you spin the whole album, you, 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 it actually, you make, it makes you even pay more attention when it's on because you, you realize this is a popular song, but it's a really good song. Mm -hmm. And I think that people always have an affinity for those deeper cuts that are really high quality, deeper cuts. That's why I lose votes on playlist wars all the time. Cause I always pull them out and then mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I didn't get as many votes as Gomez, but <laughs> nobody knows this song. Yeah. Oh, the nerd in me, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. I'm a deep cut guy too. As fa in fact, I think um, it hurt me to put that uh, Gordon Lightfoot song on uh on my playlist when i was on your show because i was like yeah i think this only went to like i think it was in the 90s it like barely made the top 100 like people are going to know what this song is it's not even one of one of gordon's best known songs in this country but god i love it so much i have to put it on and we just recorded a 1991 episode because it's the anniversary year and i went with a few of the most popular albums but really deep cuts on them. Some that were not even released as a single, you know, that, like barely in the set list, but were my favorite songs on the album. So, you know, I kind of have to stay true to myself with that. And if I lose a vote, I guess, oh, well, Gomez will mock me <laughs> for it. But if I like the song more and that's what the show is about, the dialogue and the discussion, why not be honest about it? Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. Somebody had uh, liked a tweet that I put out months ago um in response to somebody asking about foreigner four and i said my favorite song on the album is girl on the moon which is not one of the hits it was a b-side to urgent i think and it's my favorite song on that album it's just a great song and i was like that's that's just me i'm a deep cut guy sometimes yeah yeah so as you mentioned the next song was a single the fifth single from the album why can't i have you Oh, 
fifth single came out uh, January 7th of 85. So now we're in then the next year and we're still releasing singles off this album, which is the sign of a very successful album. Went to number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 11 on the mainstream rock chart. Uh, Greg Hawks said this about the album, or this song, I should say. The first song that we got on tape for Heartbeat City. So this is one that they first got down. And it's probably one of my favorite songs on the album. And it's a bit underrated because it is a, it's a ballad. But again, the Mutt Lang treatment on this, just there's so many little subtle things going on. And every time you listen to it, you can focus on something different. Mm -hmm. Everybody always talks about Drive being the beautiful ballad but why can't i have you is gorgeous it's the word i use to describe musically what mutt was able to produce on this song is lush there is so yeah. many beautiful sounds happening some of it you it, it almost becomes indistinguishable if it's a keyboard or a violin the way he dialed the sound in it's a keyboard, but the way it's being utilized, it feels like a violin, which plays towards this almost more acoustic song. Mm -hmm. But there are so many synth layers in it and the vocals, the way they stagger them in the harmonies. It almost sounds like there's four people singing, but two of them are Rick and two of them are Ben, like almost kind of off timed with each other. Yeah. It's just it, it adds this. Sonically, it was just gorgeous like that. I can't think of another word it, it really is one of the strongest songs on the album and which was kind of furthering my argument of <laughs> it's not the night being even stronger than that yeah but earlier i said magic was my second favorite so why can't i have you is probably three or four i yeah. mean look we're talking 10 songs here but yeah yeah and then you, and when you when you think of the huge hits that were on this album and you're thinking you know some of these deeper cuts may have been better songs and and it just tells you how strong the album is top to bottom so yeah definitely speaking of deeper cuts uh track nine is i refuse This is an interesting song to listen to one channel at a time. There's a lot going on in one ear that's not going on in the other ear. And Mutt built something really full and dense out of these tiny, simple bits. Once again, the keyboards are just nuts. There's one bit that sounds like a xylophone at one point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, very interesting way that they constructed the song. And it's, it's probably not... It's probably one of my least favorite songs on the album, but it's still a really good song. I would have to agree with that. It's probably my, if we were, again, you shout out to Records Revisited and using their scale, this would be like my number two. Yeah. Uh, it's not a bad song on the album, 
I expect to hear it after Why Can't I Have You? Because it's a nice contrast to that. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's a little more leaning towards the door-to-door sound, which was, okay, we've done this on the other songs, and there's not as much that jumps out at me in this song that makes me feel like it's one I would listen to just alone on a car's mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I hope this isn't being forward, but transitioning to the next song, it's literally a, a night and day difference because for what little they're doing on, I refuse what they do on the title track is just blow the whole thing up and take it to levels that aren't heard on even the rest of this album. So it is the, like the calm before the storm of the end of the album. I truly believe. Yeah. Heartbeat city closes the album. single came out in september of 85 it charted in australia and the uk but not the us it has these layered keyboard bits that give it a very dreamy vibe Uh, i feel like this is a great song for a late night car ride like if you're on a long distance trip and it's nighttime if you just crank this up on the stereo it's it's it just will help the time go by so much quicker even though it's not a very long song no, it's a fantastic song. Originally, it was the B-side to You Might Think. So that was the reason it wasn't released as a single in the U.S. and officially released as a single in the U.K. And honestly, because it was the lead single's B-side, I don't think the label expected the album to be what it was. And this was them trying to make up for it by releasing it as a single in other countries. Because if you release a B-side as a single within a year of it being a B-side, it shows you as the label made a mistake. And I think Electra screwed up on this one because this is a probably one of the, the second or third best album closer by the cars. All mixed up with the saxophone is my number one closing mm-hmm. track by the cars. But Dangerous Type and Heartbeat City are neck and neck for number two. Fantastic ways to close an album. And Heartbeat City is the perfect. That whole opening kind of feels like a musical highway happening in your ears as the song <laughs> is happening. Yeah. And it just feels like a song that should have been a theme song. It feels like a Miami Vice type thing it feels like this 
detective knowledgeable cop kind of thing. I don't know. There's just this vibe to it, but it works so well. And I think you nailed it. A nighttime drive with the headlights coming at you, seeing the red taillights. It's just that the, the song was originally, I think as a demo, if I'm looking at the, um, at the deluxe edition has some bonus tracks. It was originally just called Jackie. I'm so glad they renamed it because heartbeat city is this song. Yeah. So it's a perfect closer to my second favorite cars album and another genre defining album for the band. Yeah. It makes you want to visit this place called heartbeat city to see what it's like. I feel like it's a cinematic song. Like you talked about maybe being, um something on miami vice i could see this as a big screen song playing while somebody's doing something and and you know you don't need dialogue going on i i think it would be a good um good use of the song but uh again just very dreamy and that that constant uh all the way through is is very hypnotic and and again a lot just a lot going on just even i don't even know how many i haven't counted it but i don't know how many ways they recorded just the vocal jackie just you know there's so many different ways of singing that they sing that throughout the song yeah it's definitely the perfect closer to this album i mean it it really tone wise pacing everything i can't picture any other song on this album closing it I mean, they really nailed Hello Again and Heartbeat City as the bookends. They're perfect. And if you move them out, I think you almost take away from how great the songs are because the track listing does play a role sometimes if you're an album listening person like I am. And if you move these songs out, you make Heartbeat City a lesser album. Yeah, I agree. I think they get the sequencing for these 10 songs exactly right. Exactly the way that they should be. So overall, Heartbeat City is a fun album. It's arti- like, like like the first five Cars albums, they're all artistic statements, but without being pretentious. They're artistic without saying, oh, look how great we are. Mm-hmm. They were your every man's band. They were the quiet guys in class. They were... They weren't your rock stars. They didn't mm-hmm. have the look. They didn't have the hair. They didn't have the the swagger, but they had the music and that's all that matters. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing about the cars. They, they didn't need the rock star vibe or the attitude. They put the songs out and the songs are what made them as iconic as they are. Yeah. Where do you put heartbeat city in your cars collection in terms of, you know, we know the cars, uh, debut self-titled album is number one. Is this number two? Is it three? Where, where do you have it? It is a neck and neck tie. I honestly love both albums the same with Candio because Candio to me is the perfect second album by the cars. Heartbeat City is the perfect, I, I say closer because I really door to door really didn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. But man, it all depends on the day. I could say Heartbeat City today because we were talking about the album and now I have that vibe and then tomorrow i go put it on and halfway through since i held you i'm like yeah i'm back to candio being my favorite second cars album because i mean there's just some beautiful songs on that one too which hell if i if you ever need me to come back to talk candio 
<laughs> You'll be the first. Although I might have to I might have to bring you back for a Tom Petty episode. Oh hell yeah. I'd love to do more Petty. <laughs> One thing I was gonna say, uh, I don't remember if I said it at the time. I remember thinking it. You covered You're So Bad, which is such an unexpected petty song to be covered. Is that why you chose it? Honestly, I've always loved the ragtime barroom stomp feel of the song. And there is a video on YouTube, actually. Uh, I was lucky enough to play with a group that is unfortunately no longer around, but they were a bluegrass band called Hot Day at the Zoo. They've performed with Mo at a couple of the Mo Down festivals. And at the Triumph Brewery in New Hope, Pennsylvania, I covered You're So Bad with them. So we did a bluegrass version. And I mean bluegrass with the kick drum being a suitcase. (laughs) So that type of bluegrass. And three-part harmony, mandolin, stand-up bass, uh, was there a guitar. washboard involved? No washboard, <laughs> but full bluegrass version of it. And I've always just loved that vibe of the song. And that song jumped out to me as the least produced song on Full Moon Fever in a way where it was good because of it. Because it, any more, if you added any more to it, it would have detracted. Yeah. It doesn't so, sound like Jeff Lynn had anything to do with that song. No. No. <laughs> And which that's is perfectly okay yeah uh and jeff lynn does phenomenal work obviously but uh yeah that one you were like did jeff take the day off that day <laughs> <laughs> but thank you if you did jeff i i still yeah. love you so bad <laughs> all right so we we talked about uh i think everything that i brought you here to talk about but one thing i didn't ask you about uh which i normally do is your your consumption of music because you often will post some of your CD hauls. Is CD the primary way that you listen to music? Yes. I was big into vinyl for probably 10, 15 years. And unfortunately, I came upon some hard times and I had to get rid of a lot of the collection. And along with that, I decided that it took up a lot of space in a smaller home, more space than I was willing to have it take up. Mm-hmm. And as you can see, my CDs are in these plastic sleeves. I actually keep all the jewel cases and digipacks and everything stored in storage, but I keep the, all of my CDs in just a little cabinet in our living room that I can go and have access to 4,000 CDs at my fingertips. Yeah. And to be perfectly blunt, I got disenfranchised with vinyl when it, started popping back up in Walmarts and targets and best buys. And you, you no longer were able to go to a garage sale and be able to grab all these awesome vinyl records for 10 cents. People were trying to sell them for $50 where now I go to a garage sale and there's 30 people almost fist fighting over the rec vinyl LPs. And the woman's like, these CDs are five cents each. And I'm looking at them and it's like an entire pink Floyd collection. I could like, I have, (laughs) I have literally gotten entire band discographies for under a dollar and there, and everyone almost like the record guys look at me and they almost laugh like, Oh, you're stupid. You're why (laughs) the CD formats fantastic because yes, it's a, it's a digital form, but you could still play it on analog equipment. If you, I have a very good CD player that plays, through my system and it's got the analog to did uh, sorry the digital to analog conversion in it mm-hmm. it sounds fantastic and i can also rip the cds and put them onto my phone 
and put them onto my Sonos for when I'm just outside on the back deck. So they're portable and they take up a lot less space. So my wife is happy about that. So (laughs) CDs have been my current obsession for the last five years. I do keep all of my favorite albums of all time on vinyl, as you could see. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've no longer buying the, I like two songs on it. I got to grab the vinyl. I get the CD for that. Only if I like every single song on the album and I'll have the CD. Once I like an entire album, start to finish, I I grab the vinyl too. Yeah. That's kind of how I am in some respects. I had, uh, you know, not a huge vinyl collection when I started getting the, the cassette came along and it was so much more portable. I started getting cassettes and then the CD came along and it sounded so much better. I never had to, uh, you know, they didn't break like the cassettes did and, and they didn't Melting. get tangled up in your, in your stereo and all that oh. stuff that happened. Um, as you can see, I still do the CDs. Uh, Love this, it. this is part of my collection here, but I, a lot of the same reason you do. I, I just have always liked having the physical copy for one thing. I always liked having the physical media and having it, something tangible even even though you can't at my age read the lyrics very well in a cd (laughs) (laughs) um but like you said i'm able to go back now and get titles that i never got the first time around at dirt cheap i went to um i went to a goodwill a few weeks ago and got uh, for a dollar each i got uh, elton john's made in england and paul simon's graceland that's amazing and the thing is people And I almost don't want to talk about this on the show right now because I don't want people to be like, wait a minute. And then then I can't find them anymore. Yeah, yeah, But it's amazing because look, when let's be honest, when a CD is a dollar, I'll look at it and be like, this looks interesting. I'm going to gamble. Yeah. And if it sucks, I can just donate it back. And I did something good for charity as well. So I don't feel guilty about that in any way, shape or form. And I love holding CDs in my hand and look, if the internet goes out or if you have bad cell service, you lose Spotify. Or if Apple music decides to pull an entire artist's catalog, unless our house burns down, which knock on wood, I hope it never does. I still have these albums. Uh, I'm not renting them from a service. Yeah. I've purchased them. And I, I talk about finding CDs cheap about, you know, older stuff, but I still buy any time a band or artist releases an album. Now I always buy the CD because I don't know if I'm going to be able to stream the album as many times as buying the album once is going to do to help that artist make more music. So that way I can continue to enjoy their work. Right. And that's something that if the artist I like makes $5 off a CD or 0.5 cents off a stream, Think about the amount of times I'd have to stream the album before the artist gets that $5 that might make him struggle to create more music that I enjoy. So yes, I'm buying the physical copy and I hope if I can to buy it from them directly, if not, I do it from the independent music stores that I support because if I don't go to the independent music stores, I'm going to have no music stores to go to. Yeah. So it's all, it's part of this endless circle. It's this endless circle that I, I want to, you know, keep this music industry thriving in a way that hopefully my kids can enjoy it the way I've been able to enjoy it all these years. Yeah. The best thing about the vinyl revival is that it is, it has prevented the extinction of the record store. And the record yeah. store experience was such a huge part of, of my youth is just, Me too. 
even when I was in college, even if I hadn't have a cent to my name, I could go spend three hours in a record store easily just looking at stuff and going, oh, I got to get this. I got to get this. Uh, but like you, I'll, I will support artists, especially um, independent artists, especially important to support them so that they can continue to, to make music. But I mean, even Friday, I got um, the new ABBA uh, album came out and I had to go get a physical copy of that. So haven't, uh, and, I haven't gotten that one yet, but I'm always going to the last brand new CD I bought last week was uh, Joe Bonamassa's Time Clocks, okay. which is fantastic. Oh, and I was at uh a record store this past weekend and I got the two disc special edition of tattoo you by the Rolling Stones, which is okay. another one. I'm really enjoying disc two a lot. It's some good stuff on there. Yeah. So highly recommend that one. too. <laughs> and a another great place to buy your CDs is when you go to the show. I went to see Christopher cross recently, bought two of his albums on CD. They were signed and they were only 15 bucks each. That's... Maybe, they, maybe there were 10. I don't remember. There were either 10 or 15. I forget. And that's a personalized thing. And that, and you know, when you're buying it directly from him, he's, they're getting the bulk of the money from an artist. Yeah, absolutely. As opposed to buying it at a store where the store takes a cut, the label takes a cut. You, if, if, from what I've heard correctly with tours, they buy the merchandise first and then sell to recoup. So yeah, I'd much rather do it that way. Yeah. Brian Colburn from Playlist Wars. Where can people find you on the internet? All right. Very easy. Playlistwarspodcast.com. That's our home base. Everything about us is there. We're on everywhere. Social media on Twitter at Playlist Wars, on Facebook and Instagram at Playlist Wars Podcast. We recently started a Patreon account at patreon.com slash Playlist Wars, where we have several tiers where we're doing things with bringing on guests to do a new segment we're calling Playlist and Album, where you take your favorite album. And we do a four track playlist on it. Side A, side B, side C, and side D. So that way, and we're going to do the voting just like we do a regular show, but it's like a mini episode and trying to take some of our favorite albums and whittle them down some more. So if they're your favorite album, it's going to be hard and it's going to be complicated. And we're doing that with some of the Patreon members, as well as future episodes with stuff that they want to do with us. And anytime we release an episode, it's going up several weeks early to the Patreon account ad free. So you don't have to listen to our ads, which, you know, <laughs> helps us both as podcasters, as you know. So it's something that if you guys like what we're doing, we sincerely appreciate the support, but if you don't have the money, you can listen anywhere for free. And we appreciate that as well. Gomez and I put a lot of time into this countless hours and it's something we love, love, love doing. And the friendships that we've made through doing it with people like you and Records Revisited and all the other awesome shows that we've kind of interconnected with. Uh, it's fantastic. I hope next time I'm down your way in Florida that we can go CD hunting and catch a show together as well, man. That would be fantastic. I have a lot of tears also, but those are tears that I'm crying because I'm not winning the vote uh, on uh, on your, your <laughs> 1971 episode of uh playlist wars but well, i'm uh, crying there with you right now so <laughs> brian this has been a blast i appreciate you coming on this uh special bonus edition of michael's record collection with me it's it's been a joy to talk to you about heartbeat city by the cars if you don't have this album shame on you <laughs> what are you doing what are you even doing go and get it 
Uh, I've got three, man. Look at this. Look at this. I got the I got the regular. This is the original Japan. Like I told you, I'm sorry. This is the made in West Germany target disc. Then I got the deluxe edition that just came out, the remaster with and I got the vinyl. I don't need the cassette. Sorry. Sorry, guys. No, no cassettes here. But were there CD singles from this album? We have to go on disc. Oh, I don't know if they were. It was before I was buying. I'm not a huge CD single guy unless the bonus track is something that I can't get anywhere else. Then I got no choice. Yeah, exactly. Go to michaelsrecordcollection.com. Find out where you can get my newsletter for free uh, via Substack. Um, You you can go to my Patreon. And if you like what you hear on this show, you can uh, support in any any level that you, you know, is comfortable for you. I would appreciate that. If you have feedback for me, please write to me, michaelsrecordcollection at gmail.com. Brian Colburn, thanks again for being with me. And uh, I can't wait to be on your show again, too. Likewise, man. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to have you as a friend and a fellow podcaster. And I thank you for what you do at Michael's Record Collection. I enjoy listening. I hope you keep up the great work. And thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash michaelsrecordcollection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.